everyone. Hi, hello. It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm sitting here with John Roderick and Ben Harrison. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, oh. Together, they host a podcast called Friendly Fire, where they talk about war movies. And then separately, they each have just a, a whole buttload of podcasts. Mm-hmm. That's what we call it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I was going to say passel, a passel of podcasts. And then I'm like, wait, I'm not sure I even know what passel means. I don't know if I've ever heard that word Is before. it a word? It is a word. What does it mean? A passel is uh, it's a, it's a Western term. It's an amount of things that you could fit in a butt? Um, no, it has nothing to do with the butt. A passel is like you could have a passel of um, corn husks. Oh, cool! You know, like like it's I've always a, wanted that. You know, there are lots. You know, you can like measure the measure a distance in rods instead of yards. And sure, a horse in hands. Actually, you only measure a horse in hands. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. Someone uh, is yelling right now at the podcast, like, no, now we use. <laughs> yeah, but passel is a word like that. Right. An what archaic it? term. One of the uh, one of the segments on our show is highlighting something pedantic that somebody has criticized a war movie for, like oh the patch on that guy's jacket was not issued until one year after the events <laughs> right. depicted or it whatever pulled me right out of the movie and uh, and like I think we kind of came up with that segment with the idea of like don't do this but right we still get it <laughs> like every. We've, you know, oh, you might encourage it. Yeah, we've inevitably made mistakes about like some historical thing. Specifically, me. I make most of the mistakes on the show. People love to read other people the riot act. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best things about consuming things. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just uh, name check the passel slash buttload of other podcasts you have. <laughs> ben, you also co-host the Greatest Generation. Yes, with our third uh, co-host right. on Friendly Fire, Adam Pranica. Which, uh, by the way. He tweeted, when I put out the call for questions for this podcast, he's like, huh, because I said I'm talking to Ben Harrison and John Roderick tomorrow, and he tweeted back like, huh, they said they were busy. And I almost <laughs> wrote to you and said, should we just have him on the show too? But then at the last minute, I didn't. I don't know why. No, no we don't the, need him. We no, don't he's the him. least funny of the three. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so he's also on Friendly Fire with you guys. And so Ben and Adam, yeah. Ben and the unfunny Adam. Right. Uh, host the Greatest Generation where you talk about Star he Trek. Rides my coattails on the Greatest Generation <laughs> where we talk about Star Trek. Yeah, right. And then, are you in other podcast? You used to have a cocktail podcast. I used right? to have a cocktail podcast, and I like. I think I asked you to come on it, and it, you would like stop drinking that week or something. I think I had just got. I was pregnant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, uh, okay. We'll figure out something else. <laughs> and but you don't do that anymore. Uh, it's it's in an indefinite hiatus. Okay. <laughs> and then John Roderick. Of the Long Winters, many other bands. Uh, you're also a politician and an historian. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, but well placed, <laughs> Anne. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just watching something the other day where I wish I could remember what it was though. Um, it might have been crazy. Would it have been crazy? Anyway, not important. They were putting words on the screen as they were talking and. Uh, or an historian went by and I and I'm like I'm pretty sure it just said a historian mm. and I went back and it just said a historian I don't know how I feel I know how I feel how do you good or bad no I feel bad about that right. yeah I feel like it's an easy mistake to make if you're writing it and not hearing the word in your head mm-hmm. there's some weirdos that do that like they write and they're not speaking as they write you know I feel like it was a whatever it was the out <laughs> this is this is the worst story because I don't know <laughs> what I was watching uh, 
I, but whoever did it, for sure, it was a choice. Like, they would have known. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, all right. So, they were planting their flag in the ground. Some kind of character development, maybe, where Perhaps. the person would have been in that voice? I think it might have been Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Do you guys watch this show? Not familiar. Is it a TV show is or it, a movie? It's a TV show. Oh, does, it, does, does that it, mean you don't? Is it based on a movie? <laughs> no. Oh. I it's feel just, like my crazy ex-girlfriend made me watch a movie recently <laughs> that had a title very similar to that. Right. And I was like, is this weird foreshadowing? <laughs> <laughs> but it, And it had Ryan Gosling in it. But this oh, TV show doesn't have Ryan Gosling. No. No, this is a TV show that um, has musical numbers interspersed oh. in it. And it's very well done and it's funny and it's good. And I recommend it highly. And I think that there was a song... That had lyrics like a uh, historic or an historic. Anyway, mm-hmm. I'm going to move on. Yes. John Roderick, you're all the things I mentioned, and you also uh, co host Roderick on the Line. Mm-hmm. Since 2010 or 11. It's a long running show. With Merlin Mann. With the famous internet's own Merlin Mann. Such a good name. Alliterative names. I wanted to give our son an alliterative name, and you my. Were blocked? My, yeah, my husband said. Hard no. Wow, really? <laughs> yeah, because his last name is Quants. Oh, so it'd have to be Quint Quants or something. I I like the name Quinn. Yeah, Quinn Quants. What a great name. Come on. My husband said it was not a great name along with the vast majority of our podcast listeners. And and, and it, <laughs> the initials would be QQ? Yeah. That's he was great. like when you have a name, you have the tr- when you have a name like Quants, you got to you got to tread lightly because it just is such a there's just he just feels like it's a real force to contend with that name. It's Quants. Like, yeah, he feels like that's what <laughs> that's what the name screams. So but, did you did you name your baby Franz? Franz. <laughs> Franz Quants. Oh, that's good too. Um no, we named him Elliot. Oh, that's nice. It's it's nice, but it's not like a it's not a alliterative superhero name. No, but I have to say Elliot normalizes Quants. Right, because it's now Elliot Quants, mm-hmm. which is just very, that's very graceful. That takes that hard cue away. Yeah. Right. And uh, and all of a sudden, it just seems like Quants is just another one of those names that you hear all the time. Right. How which much, clearly it's not. How much major whitewashed Quants. life decision stuff do you let your podcast audience decide? Mm. Oh. Good question. Do you put it all to the audience? Interesting. Because um, it definitely seems like them having a bad reaction to Quinn seemed influential. Quinn Quants. I want to say that because my husband had such a strong negative reaction, that alone would have been enough. I <laughs> right. want that to be the case. It's hard but to separate the variables. Yes. I don't, but I think I would have kept, maybe I would have kept pushing if so many people agreeing with him didn't make me say, okay, maybe there's an aspect of this I'm not seeing. <laughs> so I don't think I let them decide things for me, but I definitely enjoy running stuff by them and yeah. getting some feedback. You read the room. Yeah. Okay, so Roderick on the line, and then also Omnibus with Ken well, Jennings. I have another podcast that kind of uh, morphed out of Roderick on the line called Roadwork with Dan Benjamin, mm-hmm. which I've also been doing for several years. And now a very new podcast with Ken Jennings, another one of America's television sweethearts. Right. Who is the man who won 75 uh, straight Jeopardies. 
You may remember him from old folks' homes around the country 15 <laughs> years ago. Uh, and, uh, and then Friendly... I think he crossed over. He was on in young folks' homes, too. He did. Mm-hmm. That was People a, were like, oh, my God, this guy is amazing. That was a big national event. It when really he, was. When he went past about 30, people were really watching it like the Olympics. And then, you know, to get to 75 was insane. Yeah. He's a very smart man. And then Friendly Fire is my most recent podcast. With my two good friends, I actually introduced Adam and Ben. You did, and then they started this enormously successful Star Trek podcast, which I was both envious of and also contemptuous of. <laughs> Why contemptuous? Well, because it's about Star Trek. Like, <laughs> these are full-grown men, <laughs> uh, and then they came to me with the idea of the of the War Movie podcast, which was like right in my wheelhouse. Yeah, we. Uh, I think. One thing that is kind of a through line in a lot of your work is history and like trying to puzzle through the things that have led to what's going on now. And Adam and I are both big action movie nerds. So we were like, we could watch action movies with our friend John and then he can tell us what it means. (laughs) (laughs) Are war movies something that all of you are into? Yeah. Like, I mean, I think, uh, like anybody i have complicated feelings about it because it's like i don't want to be like like i don't want anybody to get the wrong idea that we're like hawks Mm -hmm. or anything like that's not the point of this but um like i like a i like an action movie i like a uh i like a war movie because i feel like they uh it's an interesting genre that's like gone and explored a lot of interesting subjects and in interesting ways um Ben describes them as pork chop movies for himself. Yeah, because mm. like my wife won't really watch them with me, so often I have to wait for her to be like on a girl's night or out of town, and then I cook myself a pork chop and watch a movie that she wouldn't normally sit down and watch with me. I think she does the same thing with like mid nineties rom coms, you know. And I'm then, and what does she eat while you're out of town? Do you think kale? I guess uh, I don't know. <laughs> rice cakes. <laughs> Fries up some rice cakes. Yeah. And a, a big salad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm a little bit older than they are. And um, my dad was quite a bit older when I was born. So he actually was a World War II veteran. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in the 70s. And war movies played a really different role, I think, in in uh, public life and in cinema and in formulating ideas of masculinity in the 60s and 70s and, and 50s. And it was before this age of the 80s big budget blockbuster where the protagonist has his shirt off and it's <laughs> and it became a kind of comical thing. It was mm-hmm. much more, it was very uh, formulating, right, about who we were. So I grew up watching those movies in black and white sitting on my, you know, my dad's lap. And um, when the 80s came around, I was a teenager and was pre-appalled <laughs> I mean, by the time rambo 2 came out i was just like this is despicable uh so uh, so i i watch the movies that these two guys really chew on i watch them with a with like a one eyebrow arch <laughs> but i do feel they um, war movies tell a lot about us mm-hmm. and i and i'm enjoying watching we're we're, we're watching a, across a broad spectrum of films who and, chooses uh, well, it's kind of random. We, I, um, Adam and I maintain a list, and I guess John has uh, added a lot of movies to it, but we randomize it before the end of every episode, and then John just will pick a number 
and that's the next movie we watch, which is like uh, led to some, you know, you, know you, you get the bends every so often because you go from Stalag 17 to Braveheart and it's <laughs> like, oh, like this was a like a amazing, you know, Academy Award nominated Billy Wilder film and then like just Mel Gibson. A Mel Gibson, like <laughs> Jesus vehicle. Engaging in <laughs> the most Rococo depictions of violence ever. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and and then like I think in a couple of weeks we have uh, Fires on the Plane coming out, uh, which is a Japanese war film from the 50s that's like, I'd never seen it, and it is a totally amazing document because it's like about World War Two, and it's the Japanese. It's a Japanese artist kind of grappling with the the like collapse of uh, national identity that accompanied their loss in that war, mm-hmm. and it's very bleak. And it is like it's. Uh, it interrogates like the mistakes the Japanese made, and it also like doesn't let the Americans off the hook in in its depictions. And it's like it's uh, I I feel like I learned a lot, and I feel like it's a the kind of film that America has never made about a war that we've been in, or at least not, not one that I've seen. I mean, to like to really like. Uh, you know, peel back the scab and, and deal with it. Like, and within 10 years of, of the end of this, I mean, the trauma of the end of that war for Japan is like, you know, you don't need to say much about how traumatic that must've been. Cause like we nuked them. And also they like believed that they had a infallible Holy emperor who was going to like lead them to victory. Mm-hmm. And, um, like psychologically that is just like unthinkable you know do you think it's it's a hilarious episode (laughs) (laughs) do you think a war film needs to leave the viewer feeling like gravely impacted feeling the gravity of war i mean they they don't always i mean like some of the some of the earlier World War II films that we have watched are much more just kind of like straight propaganda pieces. Like here are like some good men doing a hard job and, and you know, doing doing a good job at a hard job. Mm-hmm. And Right. I'm, I guess I'm wondering like with your what your own sort of beliefs are about that. Like the intersection of this is a uh, abstruse and hard to articulate question because i don't even know exactly what i'm asking i'm just throwing i'm yeah. just throwing words at no, you i think i think that's like kind of the question of the show in a lot of ways like we our first episode is saving private ryan and it's a movie that really like feels like it's scolding the viewer for for liking it sometimes <laughs> <laughs> the the one of the interesting things about watching movies is trying to take into consideration the context in which they were originally made and shown mm-hmm. and in the 40s we had a really different idea about what what a man was right and and after world war 1 there was no public acknowledgement of the trauma of war it was the exact opposite you were meant to come back and even missing a leg 
be like, well, hello there, fellas. You know, well, that war certainly was one of those things. <laughs> and that was true after really World War II. Took it to the Jerry's. Yeah, we did. That was right. We beat the Hun. <laughs> and in after World War II, it was the same. You weren't, uh, there was no post-traumatic stress right. disorder. And was then, after Viet- Was Vietnam the beginning of acknowledging it? And it was after Vietnam when we saw such a, uh, we saw that generation of soldiers have a real hard time integrating. Mm-hmm. But that was a, that was post the explosion of psychology in the American self-consciousness. Right. And in 1950, there wasn't widespread understanding of psychology even as a thing, uh, you know, a, like subliminal um, motivation wasn't even yeah. something that we talked about. So those movies weren't feel-good necessarily because of a propaganda angle as much as it was that's just how we thought about ourselves and when you see in the 50s a representation of a soldier who's been mentally brutalized you're asked to both sympathize with him but also he's not necessarily a sympathetic person Mm -hmm. he's a broken person and you're sorry for him but you don't feel like that could happen to anyone. Mm-hmm. It, it's something that happened to weak people. And so we can't, when we, when we watch movies like Saving Private Ryan, which are 90s or 2000s movies reflecting on World War II, you often see characters portrayed with a 90s idea of what it was to be a 40s person. And that's, you know, like the Saving Private Ryan, the pedant who, who's looking for the wrong shoelaces on a boot mostly was satisfied. I mean, they got the uniforms really great, but the whole subtext of saving private Ryan, where these guys are just sitting there with shaky hands and like kind of masking their vulnerability, but not much. That's just not how they would have been. You Mm -hmm. know, the, the commander of that platoon would have been like, all right, fellows up and up, up and at them. And this whole like we've got a mission, yeah. And this whole like I'm a school teacher who can't quite get over my shell shock. It's just not the way they would have talked. Mm-hmm. My father was drafted to go to Vietnam, and the job that he had to leave to go do that was elephant keeper at the Central Park Zoo. And I feel like that's the most traumatic thing I can imagine. Like, what a great job! Yeah. And now I have to go do this. <laughs> Give me a break. Wow, he was really the elephant keeper at the New York Zoo. Yeah. Oh, I wish I had that job now. I know. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that sound great? What did he say about it? Uh, he was telling me the other day that when they fed the baby elephant, they would take like an empty whiskey bottle and fill it with like blended up bananas and milk. <laughs> this is the cutest story I've ever heard. I know. Yeah. I know. Well, I like, after <laughs> they gave him the bottle of whiskey first, right? <laughs> right. it was the 70s. Yeah, what happened to the whiskey? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's amazing to imagine. Like... Very hard to picture my father in that context, but I'm intensely jealous every time he talks about it. Hmm. Hmm. Where did you grow up, Ben? I grew up in the Bay Area. My father was discharged from the Army in the Presidio in San Francisco and uh, like became a contractor and then an architect there. And uh, so I was Lived in Oakland of the 80s. Yeah, Oakland of the 80s, which <laughs> isn't there anymore. Um, I was born in Oakland of the uh, 
mid to late 70s. Oh, man. Where did you go to school? Well, I so we, I was born in Oakland, and we lived there for like a year, and then we moved down to Orange County, oh. which is quite a change. So. Had I been aware, I would have been like, what the hell are we doing? Orange <laughs> County in the mid to late 70s was a pretty funky time, too. It was the, the entire time I was there, it was yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, but I guess Oakland was starting to get rough, and I have older brothers, and they were getting beaten up in school, so my parents were like, let's just go to the most... Uh, safe place in the whole world. The only whitest. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, until the until you realize there were poltergeists under all the swimming pools. <laughs> right. <laughs> the the school that I went, uh, where I went to kindergarten, well, kindergarten through eighth, it overlooked a cemetery. Mm-hmm. That's that's very creepy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then occasionally you would see smoke. Well, I don't know if you actually saw smoke or anyway, kids would say that there was a crematorium there. I don't think there actually was though, but I have a memory of seeing smoke and then people saying that bodies were being burned. Oh, childhood. (laughs) John Roderick. What was it like growing up with a World War II vet father? Well, you know, he was greatest generation and all of his friends were, um, and they were all politicians also. So um, my dad worked on the Kennedy campaign in 60 and uh, in the seventies, his former law partner was the secretary of transportation under Carter. And so we had, a, I had an unusual childhood cause, and, and I grew up in Alaska. So my uncle was mayor of Anchorage. His law partner was the great Senator Ted Stevens, who once described the internet as a series of tubes. <laughs> uh, and so these people cool. were the were our family friends. And when they got together and talked about the war, they just argued with each other about who had done more to save the world f- for democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh it was a it was a gag, but they never talked about anything bad. Um it was all a lark to mm-hmm. them. But these were liberals. Uh, and the old school liberals, the guys that were investigated by the House Committee of Un-American Activities, you know, my dad was a labor organizer in the late 40s. But by the time of the Vietnam War, they were outside of what was the progressive movement. It took that whole generation a long time to accept that Vietnam wasn't just another righteous war. Mm-hmm. They weren't all naturally, they were all civil rights activists a long time before they were anti-war. And watching them, I mean, even as a young kid, I remember um, seeing that tension as they struggled with how to keep, they had always been the liberalist people they ever met. And to be attacked (laughs) from the left was very destabilizing for Mm -hmm. them. Because they were initially in favor of the war? Uh, Well, because they had never been, because the idea of being against the army had never occurred to anybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, at that point. And man, their Twitter must have been lit. Their Twitter, <laughs> it was pretty wild, right? <laughs> uh, and, and I mean, and these were, you know, people that, that marched with Martin Luther King as like whites and took, took, a, took heat from their own communities and saw and, and never, never hesitated. But the idea of standing up and saying, like, these, you know, our troops shouldn't be fighting this war it was really hard leap for them to make that's so interesting i hadn't exactly considered that that for years and years and years probably you didn't like it's so it's so commonplace to question our government now especially now but my whole life really 
Um, but I guess back then probably you didn't uh, feel the need to do it as much. It's funny because during World War One, there was a, a you know there was still liberalism was still very uh, about questioning the status quo, and there was a lot of protest against American involvement in World War One. And Woodrow Wilson, who was a liberal, used pretty repressive tactics to put down um, any kind of protest about the war and put people in jail. Eugene Debs was mm-hmm. jailed. Um, for pretty, you know, pedestrian protest. And it put a little bit of a lid on what was publicly, what you would actually stand up and fight for. But all through the 30s, I mean, there was a national movement to socialism and stuff. I mean, it wasn't that they didn't understand how to resist the government. They were all they were all against McCarthy. But there was something sacred about you know, and we see it now. This like don't, don't, um, sort of. You know, you have to support our troops. Mm-hmm. We see that in half the population of the country, right? And it's an and it's involuntary, right? They no one would. Well, you can second. get accused of not supporting the troops for like not being pro the Afghanistan invasion or something, which is like, which was always like super frustrating to me in high school. I was like, no man, like I'm just against like. You know, right? A policy, not the people mm-hmm. that are stuck doing the policy. You well, know? it's yeah, crazy it gets, now. It's it, politicized that argument. I mean, you can you can get yelled at for being against the F twenty two Raptor, which is the <laughs> most expensive and least functional jet airplane ever manufactured in history. It's total garbage. What's the uh, what color ribbon do you have to have to support the planes? <laughs> I mean, but but within the military culture. If you are against something that is connected to the military, then you're against our troops, mm-hmm. right? And that's a that's a logic that just doesn't follow. But anyway, those guys who had who were who grew up with this, you're in the army now type of um, patriotic connection to like we're fighting for democracy, and mm-hmm. that was the American project too, right? We decided that we were helping the world; that was our job, and that was the logic of going into Vietnam. We were helping. Mm-hmm. And it was really a disillusioning several years that it took us to realize, wait a minute, we are really the agents of not helping. <laughs> we are doing the ambassadors the f- yeah. of not helping. We are inventing new ways every day to not help these people. And so now you're, I know you're a politician. Yeah. In what way? I mean, I ran for Seattle City Council a couple of years ago. I've been active in politics my my whole life because of how... That was what we talked about around the dinner table. And because my uncle and dad were both actually elected politicians at different points in their life, I, I thought of that as being something I was called to do. And running for office, it was a real, um, I mean, a, a real lesson for me. In what? In something I think I knew and we all know, which is that running for office is its own set of skills mm-hmm. and its own profession that's very different from holding office and being a a person that's interested in governance and in public policy. It's like auditioning versus acting. Well, and even more like it's like acting versus doing a, a boring job, right? <laughs> I mean, to be, a, to be electable, you have to be a certain kind of person and, and, then the good ones are kind of sociopathic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if pe- you have to be invincible to people yelling at you. 
while also communicating to them that you're really listening. <laughs> and yeah. when you're doing the work of government, you have to have digested a bunch of complicated land use policies and figured out what the best thing is for the greatest number of people. And those are so different from one another. <laughs> and I'm in the latter category. I will talk about like sewers all day with <laughs> engineers and with people that are like, my toilet keeps not working. Mm. But, and I think people assumed I would be good at politics because I like to talk and I like to schmooze. And you're a performer. And I'm a performer, right? But if someone came up to me and said, we were promised sidewalks on my block back in the 50s, I would plant my feet and say, well, now let's talk about this. Who made this promise? And, you know, and my campaign staff was like, we got to go. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them that it's fine and you'll do it. Like, let's keep moving. And so I would sit and, and if somebody was mad, and there are a lot of people that are just mad. Mm -hmm. They're not mad at you. They're just, you're just the one standing there. But I tried to engage every person. And by the end of the campaign, like I had, I was basically having a heart attack every morning. I wasn't very well suited to the kind of uh, emotional like Teflon mm -hmm. that you have to be, that you have to have if you're going to just roll. And I, I, you know, that was the thing about Obama. Nobody thought that he had that either. You could see that he bore a lot of emotion um, he was an introvert, or whatever, mm -hmm. but somehow, you know, he he certainly had enough had enough ability to to water off a duck's back that he was the president for eight years. I think it's interesting what you're saying about the skills that are required to be a good politician. I hadn't thought about that that you have to, you know, n you have to be impervious to all the people criticizing you while at the same time making it seem like you're listening to everything. Cause I think it, it made me think that you also have to be so sure of what you believe that you aren't, you're not even enter really truly entertaining. I'm just saying what you're saying. In other words, you're not really <laughs> entertaining the arguments against it. And also to be like a good political TV pundit, you have to do that too. Because yeah. I think my problem in life is like I can like the name Quinn and then a bunch of people don't like it. And I'm like, oh, maybe I need to consider that. But that is what we used to think was the quality of a good politician. Now we, now I think politicians think that they have an ideology and mm -hmm. their job is to take, you know, to grab right. that football and take it to the end zone. Right. More dogmatic. And in the old days, I mean, the whole, we don't have, the word bipartisan means nothing now. It used to mean that you would sit in there and be convinced. And enough people say, enough people would say, uh, look, Quinn Quant isn't <laughs> how we're going to have to go here with this. <laughs> and you would finally go, all right, all right, all right. And that's how legislation got hashed out. And if you were just like, Quinn Quant, that's, a, that's what I was elected to do and that's what my constituents want and I'm not bending. I mean, that's how you get a government like we have, yeah. which is just, which is not functional. And I don't. I, I think that's true in our whole culture now. Um, yeah, that like I mean, you like read a news article about somebody, you know, being accused of a of a crime or something, and it's like, it, and then like you read that the jury acquitted them, and it's like, what the hell? You know, it's like they were accused of a crime, and you know, like you, it's very hard to like imagine the idea of persuading somebody to the opposite of that. I mean, during the during the election uh, in Alabama this past year, my Twitter feed was just 
choked with people screaming about Ray Moore and screaming as though they, they the people following them on Twitter were like on the fence Alabama Senate voters <laughs> who just needed to be screamed at one more time. And I did an experiment where I said, I'm just, this is a completely like neutral post. I would just like to see through retweets alone, can I get a reply from one single Alabama voter? And it got retweeted by people with millions of followers. It mm -hmm. went out and retweeted into the heavens. And I got a lot of replies like, hey, I, my grandmother's one. <laughs> but, uh, or, you know, like, <laughs> and I never got a single reply that was like, you know, yeah, here I am. Like, I got your tweet. And it's just, just so in, in the algorithmic bubble that it's like impossible to penetrate into the other bubble. Yeah, yeah there isn't there. We, our media, the stuff we digest is so tailored now. Mm -hmm. You never hear. No, no one, no one in my Twitter feed would dare say like, well, Ray Moore's got a lot of good points. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they would just get eaten by crocodiles. Huh. I hadn't even thought about that, that in the way that we're all connected now with the algorithmic model, we're all disparate. Yeah, yeah, you tailor your feed and if and pretty soon the only news you get is the news that comports with your pre-existing worldview. Mhm. Mm so, John, you introduced Ben and Adam. How did you guys all meet? I met John through Maximum Fun, uh which is the podcast network we're now on with a uh, with Friendly Fire and The Greatest Generation. Um they do a like a comedy and creativity retreat up in the mountains above LA every year called Max FunCon, and uh, <laughs> I didn't I wasn't familiar with John's music when I first encountered him, and I have a very vivid memory of seeing like a torn off piece of paper from a legal pad on a seat in the front row that said this seat reserved for John Roderick, and I was like I don't know who this John Roderick guy is, but I like the cut of his jib. <laughs> He like walked in here and just like picked a seat for himself. And I think it was like because he was being planted to jump on stage and perform in one of the shows. But uh <laughs> uh we like always had an easy rapport and um that was like early enough in my life that I wasn't really used to meeting people that were like well known or famous or anything. So it was like, Oh wow, this guy like has a real career and he treats me like a human. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> um and so we got to be friends and over several years, like, you know. Was he a celeb at uh, the Max Fun Con? Yeah. Like, John is, uh, John is, has been to most of those and if not all, and uh, always plays guitar on stage and uh, sometimes casts pod or teaches a class or something. So, um yeah, and then I was up in Seattle uh, working on a film, and I went to a uh, was, would you would you call the Rendezvous show like a stand up show or no? I did a I did a weekly show for a year in Seattle, a weekly live show because it wasn't funny. No, it wasn't meant to be funny. <laughs> it was just like hey, this podcast in the comedy section, <laughs> so <laughs> it doesn't always have to be. It was um it was just an experiment, you know. I was just trying to figure out a way to make regular things mm -hmm. and, and at a local level, which we often in this world are thinking all the time, like, how do I get this to the largest audience? And this was more of a, I had a hundred seat little theater and I just did. And I learned that from John Hodgman. 
he started doing a show in Brooklyn um, where he was trying out new material mm-hmm. on an audience and he charged him five bucks and his attitude was, you're getting charged five bucks. So <laughs> you have nothing, you know, if you're mad, if you think I didn't do a good job, like just take it on your heels. And I thought, that's a, you know, that's a great model. Um, and so I charged five bucks for my show. But I had the, uh, and I think, I'm not sure which one of us, I think maybe it was John that devised this idea too, which was that the people in the room had the first option of buying tickets for the next show. And so for the first nine months of my show, the tickets never went on sale. They just sold out in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't the same crowd every time. People would pass their tickets on. But it was a real incubator. And I didn't feel like I had to. It's not that I didn't have to be good, but that I could really try weird stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, you get it's $5. I, uh, I emailed him to say, hey, I'm in town. I'd love to come to the show. And he said, sure. And like sent me to the person who was like coordinating guest list. And she said, hey, just so you know, you're going to have to pay to get in. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> and then... And then it was like five bucks and it was also like two blocks from the hotel I was staying at. So I was like, all right, fine. And uh, afterwards, uh, Adam uh, was working on the show and uh, John said, hey, you guys have a lot in common. You guys will like each other. And uh, we like wound up down one end of the table at the uh, at the restaurant we went to after the show, me and Adam. And we we're just like holding hands under the table. Yeah. It's <laughs> not all we were holding. <laughs> uh, yeah. We just got along like. Like, uh, and what had Adam been doing for the show? Well, Adam is, uh, so I'm in my other career, a freelance video producer and Adam has a very similar career. Uh, he shoots a lot of video for a major airplane manufacturer based in Seattle, Washington. Um, and, uh, which I will not divulge the name of. They're but. called Boeing. You may have heard of them. It's a large company. Yes. I, I'm, I'm not afraid of giving them free advertising on this show. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, just go to Boeing.com slash Allison <laughs> if you want to buy... Um, 10% off. Yeah. <laughs> the kickback on that is that ad has got to be awesome. <laughs> they just cut you a $100,000 check every time they get a sale. Don't really go there, you guys. There's, there's, nothing, <laughs> there's nothing there. Um, yeah, but Adam and I, like, I, I mean, we just really, like, made each other laugh, like, instantly. And um, it was one of those, like, I... I I'm not in Seattle all the time, but every time I was there, I like made a point of like getting lunch or dinner with him because it was always just super fun. And eventually we were tweeting Star Trek jokes at each other one night and I was like, God, (laughs) I hate to do this, but I kind of want to suggest that we do a Star Trek podcast together. (laughs) And, uh, and we did. And like, for some reason it found an audience. So it was like we, like we're both in our 30s and we never expected to have a career making a publicly consumable comedy thing like this. I mean, maybe direct a, a film or or something like that eventually, but um like the idea that we're in front of the microphone and the the personalities that people connected with was like a total weird surprise and like now like we go on tour and play shows with like and people come up and want to talk to us after the show and it's like <laughs> this is so weird like I'm not used to this but it's great <laughs> what was the film that you were working on in seattle uh i'm making a documentary about a guy in tacoma actually who is trying to build a space elevator on the moon 
And uh, his idea is that this is like a billion dollar piece of infrastructure that we could build to make it really easy and uh, relatively affordable to send people to the moon. Um, Like it would cost the same as going to the space station, basically. Sorry, what's a space elevator? Uh, (laughs) This is something that everybody knows. (laughs) The old space elevator technology. We've managed to... We've managed to keep it from Allison, though. Yeah. <laughs> it literally is. You take a big tape up into space and lower it down really slowly, and eventually it comes down and touches the ground. And then so, you grab it. Yeah. So there would be like a space station somewhere between the Earth and the moon, and then a, a tether that connects that space station to the moon, like physically connects it, and a vehicle that rides along that tether like a train. Oh, so it's like a bullet train to the moon. Yeah. How exciting. And and so the big problem with getting into space is that it costs a ton to, like, like you have to take fuel with you to get to space and you have to have enough fuel to, like, propel that fuel plus something, Mm -hmm. uh, something you want to actually get into space. Like, so, like, that Falcon Heavy rocket that they shot up is, like, like the the Tesla was like a little tiny thing right on the top of just basically three huge tubes full of combustible material, and if you could build a space elevator, it would be you don't have to build burn you know. But it's a materials science problem. You have to build a ribbon that is strong enough to hold its own weight all the way to space. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so like to build one on Earth currently, there are like some materials that they think might work eventually, but we aren't good enough at making them. But for the moon, you could actually just use like Kevlar or Vectran or something. Yeah. Well, nanotubes for the Earth system, but. Now we're talking about nanotubes. Yeah. It didn't take long. That could have been a good first name for your son, too. <laughs> Nano? Nanotubes. Nanotubes. Nanotubes yeah. quants. Would, oh, I like it. Yeah. It Very would, futuristic. 20 years from now, that would be a killer yeah. first name to have. When we're all wearing like silver jumpsuits and mm-hmm. every door slides open. Nanotubes quants. Oh, nanotubes quants. Yeah. Really, like, <laughs> ahead of the game here. There he is. <laughs> Yeah, we Zaf- all had to change our names. <laughs> <laughs> Zaphod Beeblebrock. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, so that's like that's a documentary project that is still that's a documentary project that I'm still working on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was at that point um, in the project going and spending like a month at a time in the Pacific Northwest and doing lots of shooting there. So and is that is this documentary some uh, your own idea or were you hired? Yeah, I'm directing it and we we had a kickstarter to fund part of it and um uh i'm like very late in delivering it because it's a documentary and they never go the way you predict um but we're actually getting ready to shoot some some more stuff in the next couple of months and hopefully that'll be the last stuff how was sf sketch fest for you guys uh, we had a great time. John is a real grizzled veteran of Sketchfest, but that was my my and Adam's first time there, and uh, we had a great, great show. Um, we were in like a theater that was maybe a little too big for us, uh, given that it was like a Wednesday night. But uh, but it seemed like really full, and and the crowd seemed to have fun. Um, yeah, we. Uh, I saw your uh, appearance on Jordan Jesse Go, but was mm. unable to get to your your actual podcast. Well, you're dead to me then. Did you enjoy it? Do you yeah, like it? That, that was my first time doing Sketchfest. My show sold out, which awesome. yeah, sold out. Um, All right, bragging <laughs> ahead of time because my big concern was 
what if I'm just disappointing in all ways? What mm-hmm. if I, you know, and what if it's I'm performing to like 20 people who are super into it, but still. Um, so that was a huge relief knowing that it was going to be a good crowd. Well, you've done a lot of live podcasting. I I have. Well, yeah, I've done a ton of live podcasting with Adam. Um, but then at my own show, I think I've done it like 11 times over yeah. five years or something. So that's like... It's a, hard in LA because yeah. nobody comes to anything. LA. Right. So it's... I I always um have mixed feelings about doing it because my concern and I've like my audience has heard me say this before um I feel like what makes for a good uh studio podcast is not the same thing that makes for a good live podcast mm-hmm. and sometimes those things compete with each other because how do you make a lot you know the tendency is to want to perform and then that sort of steps on the intimacy and just how do you bridge it all yeah. but I felt like it just kind of all magically came together at this podcast. So yeah, um, it was, re- uh, yeah, I was very relieved. And I, and the experience was just, cause I've done, you know, some other festivals and I've loved all of them, but especially loved SF Sketchfest. Yeah. It's really amazing. We, uh, Adam and I stayed like a, a whole week so that we could see a whole bunch of shows. And especially when we would like stop and chat with a stand-up comic, we'd be like, yeah, we're like, we have a show on Wednesday night, but we like came in on Friday and we've like seen a bunch of shows and they'd be like, why? and uh we were speculating that like if you're a stand-up and you're like the way you make money is go do stand-up shows like the last place you want to be in your free time is stand-up show right and but we're just still like fans of comedy and there's gonna be like like we can like walk into most shows with our badge and uh and enjoy it and uh and uh like at, at the gateway theater the that like is kind of like the home of the fest we we were there like most nights and by the end the staff at that place was like all right these dopes again (laughs) oh trying to get in 15 minutes early with their badge because they think they're so special (laughs) um yeah i do wish i had been there longer and seen more shows i was kind of in and in and out i was there for two nights but it still felt like somewhat in and out yeah we have a baby i do (laughs) i do um, I missed my wife and my dog, but like I was also, you know, they can take care of themselves. <laughs> Let's take some questions that came in over Twitter. But first, I want to say Allison Rosen is your new best friend is supported in part by HelloFresh, the meal kit delivery service that delivers your favorite recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat and enjoy. All the ingredients come pre-measured in handy labeled meal kits so you know which ingredients go with which recipe. There are three plans to choose from classic veggie and family. I chose veggie. I'm not uh, technically a vegetarian. I say technically because I do eat meat, but it, it but very rarely. Um, but I'm always wanting to be more of a vegetarian. And I was sort of curious what the vegetarian options would be. So I chose veggie. I was super happy with it. The meals that they sent me were grilled cheese and veggie jumble. Um, Satan, I'm reading from the heavy cardstock uh, recipe cards that are mouthwateringly. The pictures are so delicious and the recipes are so easy to make. Um, Seitan Tacos El Diablo and Baby Portobello and Arecchiette Primavera. And all of the ingredients were so fresh. The Roma tomatoes that I had were like the best Roma tomatoes. I said tomatoes funny. Roma tomatoes. 
I added some extra salt. That's how good they were, you guys. They weren't just tomatoes. They were tomatoes. And also, uh, in the grilled cheese and veggie jumble, there was something called grilling cheese, which maybe some of you are familiar with. I was not familiar with. Um, it's like a special kind of, it's like a giant cheese curd. And it doesn't melt when you cook it. You can just fry it. It was so good. All of it was so good. HelloFresh makes it easy to cook delicious, balanced dinners for less than $10 a meal. Recipes only take around 30 minutes. Try things you never think to cook on your own and enjoy eating outside of your comfort zone. I feel like this grilling cheese was outside of my comfort zone, but my comfort zone has expanded to include grilling cheese. Um, what I found I liked best about HelloFresh was, first of all, they make it so easy. And then just the, the freshness and deliciousness of the ingredients, the whole thing. I'm, I'm a fan. I'm on board. For $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com and enter promo code BESTFRIEND30. That's HelloFresh.com code BESTFRIEND30. So HelloFresh.com code BESTFRIEND30 for $30 off your first week. Let's take some questions that listeners have sent in. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. Who did your music? This is Tom Rapp goes by the name Trap Dog, mm-hmm. and he has been doing all the jingles for the show for the longest time. They're great. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, he is uh, in Long Island, although he's planning on moving, <laughs> and now I'm like, wait, did he move? Or I don't think so. so Dig him. Dig him. Thank you. Uh, okay. By the way, put out the call for questions. Received a lot of tweets that I did not understand at all. Yeah. So A lot of our fans are incomprehensible. Yeah. Well, no, I got the sense that these were just references, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of references I didn't get. Or were you being facetious? I was being facetious. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Jeremy Frank says, Riker dies first in a war movie because he talks about his sweetheart back home. Who does he describe and how does he describe them? Someone oh, parse this for me. This is a, this is a Star Trek question that is being couched in friendly oh. fire context yeah mm. i think i feel like i'm <clears throat> i i want to bounce off this question because yeah. it's it's a bait <laughs> well we can yeah, move so, on uh, I, yeah i don't know i don't know the answer i like that uh, jeremy is a guy i've met in person and is a really sweet dude uh i guess deanna troy probably i i didn't remember the second half of the question yeah it's got to be deanna troy yeah okay that should satisfy him and then Morris Schwartzer says, and I don't understand the first part of this question. How about guests on Friendly Fire? What's your favorite war movie type? Land, sea, or sky? Mm. We we don't have a model for having. Oh, guests. he's. Oh, I see. He's. Those are yeah. two questions. Yeah, one's he, like, how about having guests? People. I mean, of the four podcasts I do, none of them have ever had a guest. Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys haven't had a guest on Greatest Gen, or uh, did you? We interviewed LeVar Burton one time. Oh, I had him really on my fun. show, too. He's great. Oh, man. He is. He's a nice man. I've met him, too. That guy is just a bubbling font of positive energy. Um, I suppose we could, technically, but but uh, but part of the dynamic of Friendly Fire is that each of the three of us carries a kind of portion of the show. Mm-hmm. And right. to introduce someone who is either just like a friend of ours who wants to talk about a movie... 
Like our good friend Jason Finn, who's the drummer of the Presidents of the USA, really has strong feelings about Master and Commander, <laughs> starring Russell Crowe. And we just reviewed that film, and he is so mad we didn't have him on the program. <laughs> but all he would have done is just yell at us about how great it is, and we're already doing that. Yeah. He um, wouldn't have added to that chorus that much. But the question of the, the genre of war movie that we prefer, it was interesting. Very early on, we did a couple of submarine movies. And after that, we started to see that there are a lot of war movies that are submarine movies, even that aren't on a submarine. Yeah. <laughs> Master and Commander definitely qualifies as a submarine genre film. Uh, yeah, I've, I've always been a big submarine movie fan. Um, like, it, like it's a, a favorite genre of mine, absent of being a part of the war subgenre. You know, I like a con man movie, a heist movie, mm-hmm. submarine movie. Submarine movie, everybody's trapped in a tube. Mm-hmm. There's only one set. Um, they typically have, you know, character tropes and story tropes. Like there's always the like, oh, we're like super deep and it's dangerous and right. we can't get the engine started. The valves are blowing. They yeah. have to dive, dive. There's, you know, there's <laughs> got to close the door with our buddy on the other side yeah. and watch him drown through the little window. Someone is treacherous on board, but you can't, you can't know who. And I mean, it's um, it's it's very appealing as a, as like a little compressed tube of war movie. <laughs> okay. Paul Bloom says, would Ben or John rather play MFK with their parents or their significant other's parents? Oh, uh, like fuck, Mary kill. Mm-hmm. Uh, boy, uh, just the parents though. It's a, the, Who, how do you do it? Yeah. F- we need a third MK. person. That's no, I think they mean like have the conversation about it. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh. Wait, maybe I'm misinterpreting. No, I yeah. I feel like so like so like I walk in over to my to my mother in law and say Francine, fuck Mary Kill. <laughs> yes. With the, with like, the cast of the three uh, Beastie Boys. Yeah, right. <laughs> Brewster's dozens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't maintain a uh, a single significant other. Uh, and I do feel like this would be a really cool dating game. Mm. Uh, meet somebody and hang out and then be like, "Let's, yeah, let's have dinner with your parents. <laughs> hey, so here's a game. Here's an extremely vulgar game we of, can play. Of, of all the wait staff in this restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, you don't main, I, I must follow up. You don't maintain a single significant other. Do you have a passel buttload? Of, of pe- people who could, are you, what's going on here? Well, you know, I'm a rock musician and so live a very complicated life. Right. Um, and have for many years. And uh, I have a daughter with a woman who is my, absolutely baby mama. my baby mama and like best pal and we are co-parents. And then I have, you know, some very close friends. This led to a very awkward conversation when I tried to invite John to my wedding <laughs> And John plus 12. Yeah. And she was interpreting somehow like I was like inviting you to my wedding and saying like, you guys should do it. And she was saying, get married. And I was like, no, no, I'm not trying to pass judgment on your arrangement. Uh, but no, I'm just I I'm um, what would you how would you describe it? I'm you know, I'm a kind of introverted and I'm uh, and I travel a lot for work. And so it's hard to maintain a kind of stable Traditionally, has been hard to maintain a stable mm-hmm. relationship, but now that I have a daughter, of course, I have stability enforced upon me by my love for my child and my responsibilities to her. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but that, in in ways, makes it even more difficult to begin a really focused relationship, a romantic relationship with somebody. Because, and I tried that for the last couple of years, uh, but but any time there was a conflict or competition between my lady friend and my and my lady sire, my my own child, mm-hmm. I always, you know, I would say like I'm going to err on the side of my daughter every time. It's I can't have there be a competition between you and and um, her. I would think that would just be catnip for ladies. Well, it is, but it's also, you know, every lady likes a project, and I'm a huge project. <laughs> you know, what I am is basically a Victorian house in a great neighborhood that no one maintains. <laughs> and so you have to put all new stuff in there, and that's so appealing to all the, to all the home builders out there. <laughs> right. But unfortunately, I'm also haunted, and, oh, uh, no. and, and I'm historically preserved, or mm-hmm. historically protected by, by local ordinance. So. <laughs> So you can't you could make lose a, five pounds instantly if you just took that brass plaque off. Yeah, <laughs> you can't can't do it right. So so um, and the neighbors would complain if mm-hmm. it, if you did, if you painted me any garish colors. Yeah. So it's it it does you know it 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 my life has always been like this. So it's not okay. Strange so, to me. I thought perhaps you were saying that you're polyamorous no. or in an unconventional like no. MTV would do a documentary about you kind of. That might be situation. true, but I but but polyamory does not describe me. Okay, and neither does whatever the other convention or the, monogamous. You know, uh, serial monogamy isn't exactly the term, although I mean I'm I, you know. I'm Do you not, believe in monogamy? I'm not a philanderer. Uh, well, I I don't think of it as a religion, so I'm not sure whether I believe in it or not. I guess every situation presents itself, and I try and navigate it mm-hmm. uh, on its own terms in the kind of the truth of the moment and and personally like when my daughter was born i was already in my 40s and i had never lived with a woman which just seemed natural up till that point and i'd never found a reason to move in with someone and most of my girlfriends had never suggested it so Mm -hmm. it seems like it was agreed upon in the room, right? The, <laughs> the script was bought in the in the elevator. <laughs> that that being in a relationship with me had its own sort of just baked in rules mm-hmm. that weren't rules. It was just like, do I want to live with this person? Because he seems like it seems like I'm not I'm not like a bull in a china shop. I'm more like a half anesthetized bear, <laughs> right? Like they shot me with a mm-hmm. dart from the helicopter. <laughs> I'm still too dangerous to get into the cage, but I'm not fully functioning as, mm-hmm. a, as a fully dangerous bear either, I'm just sort of like a sleepy bear. Uh, and then when my daughter came home from the hospital, we honestly, we walked out of the hospital with babe in arms. Mm-hmm. And you remember what that's like. It's terrifying. You yeah. can't believe they let you out into the world. And all of a sudden, like the sun seems like an enemy. Like, why are you sunning on my child? When... So we, they have you put him in the car seat, like before they'll let, let you take him out and just putting him in the car seat, the straps, like they're too strong for his little neck. Like he's seems like sort of like a jello in a jello mold. And all of this is way too, has too, has sides and it's, I don't (laughs) know. Yeah. It was like very over, it's an overwhelming physical feeling of like, none of this feels Right. <laughs> I drove home at 12 miles an hour with yeah. the flashers on, you know, um, like it was a parade. <laughs> but when we left the hospital, it was a question still whether we were going to turn left to go to 
my daughter's mother's house or right to my house. Mm. And we sat in the car and we're like, well, let's go to my house. And my I have a little farm that's kind of on the outskirts of town. And it made more sense. And then all of a because sudden. Because you want to take a baby into a place that's full of swords. Well, my house does have a lot of swords and also like <laughs> vintage poisons, but I put them all up high. <laughs> Good. And uh, and so all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I was living with two women, one of whom was very difficult and one of whom was a baby. <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, it was like it was great. I mean, I couldn't have been happier. Really? Because that's a really hard time. It is, but I'm. Um, I mean, my whole career was stay up all night. Mm-hmm. Sleep a little bit. Everything's loud all the time. And the difference of being with a baby is no one's on drugs and no one's blowing cigarette smoke mm-hmm. in my face. So Were was, you on drugs? No. I, I got sober years and years ago. Um, so I just took to, the, I took to it. And I felt like my responsibility as the dad was just to be there to field every single possible thing that, that spilled over. Right? I mean, you know, the mo- your mom gets so overwhelmed and and I just had a giant catcher's mitt mm-hmm. and the baby and I could go elsewhere and that my house was big enough I could take her where uh, her mother couldn't hear her and so she could go to sleep a little mm-hmm. bit and stop worrying and and I can stay up for hours and hours I'm like a one of those mules that can <laughs> just pull and pull and pull I don't need food I can go three days has know? it ch- now has that changed at all for you as you've gotten older because I used to be that way and I have I've lost my ability to pull all-nighters it, it I have lost it and um and now my daughter is very contemptuous of me she comes home from the first grade and she's like let's play kung fu and I say daddy needs a five minute nap and she's like ugh (laughs) you and your naps your despicable naps (laughs) so she's like really impatient with the fact that i am so tired yeah and just like slow she's remained remarkably unsorted throughout this time though which is good yeah swords have not (laughs) no she had she i mean she has her own swords but uh, but they're not sharp right right? i give her the dull sword do you (laughs) You collect swords, I take it? Not necessarily. I collect a lot. I have a lot of globes and candelabra, which seems like a strange thing to collect. Um, so my house looks like the uh, Phantom of the Opera. Um, I'm on board for all of this. And yeah. uh, like old old uh, belt buckles. And I actually do have some vials of poison that uh, poison and acids that... that uh, Where did you get them? <sighs> You know, some people have weird taxidermy in their house. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't have any taxidermy. But if you see like some crazy thing that's like hydrochloric acid in some 19th century bottle, I don't know how you could avoid buying it. <laughs> right. I'm just wondering where do you buy it? I spend, Goodwill, you know. Yeah, I spend a lot of time just searching um every little rat hole. Uh, because it because that is it, like where you'd find it. Yeah, okay. and it's a it's part of this does whatever it is that motivates you to be history minded. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever I see something old, I go I go b- brush the dust off of it to see what it is, and then sometimes I end up taking those things home. Interesting. It's not a good way to like live. Whatever that does, it give you joy. I was just gonna say. I was just gonna ask how you feel about this whole Marie Kondo thing. Well, this is a podcast, so Marie Kondo is 
contractually obligated to come up, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard for me to reconcile. I, I understand the the uh, the freedom, the joy of tidying up, yeah, and of just having nothing. I can imagine it. I've lived out of a backpack. I know what it's like to have just like four changes of clothes, four changes of underwear, two shirts. Mm. That's not exactly <laughs> four changes of clothes, but but um, but I'm also surrounded by all this ephemera and and family history, and uh, I became kind of the the family historian, right? So everybody that finds an old photograph in a frame is like, do you want this? Do you know who this is? And I'm like, oh, that's great uncle Rochester. Is um, there really a Rochester Roderick? Uh, my brother David is named David Rochester Roderick. So yes. Yes. We don't have any instances where Rochester is a first name. Okay. It's a middle name and a last name. And so anyway, I, so I go through my house all the time and I'm like, how do I get rid of anything? And I think, and I keep talking about an eBay store I'm going to open that's going to sell like all this <laughs> incredible stuff. Uh, but I've never managed to actually put anything for sale. It's a lot of work. One more nosy question. So you and, um, your daughter's mother lived together for a period of time and then decided no there was, more? It was actually, there was a day she woke up and I had a whole room that was hers, a big room with an old sweet bathroom. She was getting ready in the morning wearing her pinstripe pencil skirt suit and I was there sort of in bed with <clears throat> little baby getting ready for a, for a day, for another big day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, she said, you know, I think it's about time I move back to my own apartment. And who knows what precipitated it. But again, just as a general sense of like, this is now the, this is the right move for me. And so she had a two bedroom apartment that she'd been renting uh, actually to Luke Burbank of the Too uh, Beautiful to Live yes, podcast. I know who that is. He was living at her house. And so she booted him out unceremoniously because I think he was going through a divorce and he was bothering the neighbors with all of his late night caterwauling. <laughs> uh, when was this? This was six, seven years ago. Okay. My daughter's almost seven. Now. Gotcha. I was uh, just trying to figure out if the woman that I met Luke Burbank with is the one he was divorcing from, but I don't believe so. Yeah. That might be a subsequent. Friend. Yeah. Um, and so then all of a sudden we were maintaining two houses uh, which was a new wrinkle, but we have remained friends and we've never, excuse me, we've never, we've tried a couple of times at the suggestion of others to systematize our co-parenting. What does that mean? Well, there's a, you know, there's a whole co-parenting um, mitigation industry, right? Of, of, uh, what is it, binders? Whiteboards. Yeah, right. And just like, you <laughs> know, like you have to have a calendar. This is that. You know, here are everybody's assigned times mm-hmm. and duties and rights. And that this is meant to like court mandated kind of co parenting. But, but also, it's a standard that people try to apply to situations as though that's going to reduce um, the opportunity for there to be conflict. Right. right. But my feeling was that. That if you set a system in place like that, you're it's just the lowest common denominator. You're going to work to the system rather than try and work cooperatively. Mm-hmm. And I go out of town for a week, but then so does my daughter's mother. She travels a lot for work. And so we've found that just being flexible and being and recognizing that we're all on the same team 
means that every week ends up being different. And, you know, pediatricians and teachers will say that children they need structure. need structure. But there's a lot of structure in our life. We don't have necessarily breakfast at the same time every day, but we do have systems and routines and rituals that are constant. And so I don't find that that she's having this um she she that she's having negative effects from not having dinner at five right. every night. Um you know, I grew up in the seventies when people put a a key to your house around your neck on a piece of uh of red yarn and said <laughs> Here's how you make macaroni and cheese. There's tab in the refrigerator. Good luck. <laughs> um, don't start smoking until you're 11. <laughs> and she just, you know, she lives a life where she's just absolutely. And when we have to struggle not to make her the center, right? Because I think that's damaging to kids too. We have to say to her sometimes, you know, mom and dad have a relationship too. And we need to focus on ourselves sometimes mm -hmm. by watching the Americans <laughs> and not always be constantly talking to you about Peppa Pig. <laughs> okay. Uh, Mr. Toasty, if, if you're nasty, says, um, and by the way, I don't understand what this is about, but these are John Roderick-centric references. Please like 10 on Genera Hypercolor, five on Murder City Devils, a few McGovern political pins, then rap with Trench War and Dale Bozio. Is he saying please ask 10 on? Oh, 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 please like 10 on this, right. five, I see, okay. Just speculation on my part, I don't know. Perhaps. I don't know this guy. Maybe that is what he's saying. I still don't know what that is. I saw that tweet and I was... Baffled. <laughs> What's the syntax of please like 10? Please like 10. And maybe he's in like 10 questions on oh, Genera Hypercolor. Yeah. The there ask is silent. <laughs> there aren't 10 questions about Genera Hypercolor. Is There's that the really shirts that changed color? Yeah. I, so a, a long, long time ago, I worked in a warehouse. It was one of the, one of the jobs that I did um, before I realized that I couldn't have a job. <laughs> I worked in a warehouse d during the era when Genera Hypercolor was briefly like very popular. Were you already a musician? Uh, uh, fledgling, frustrated. Mm -hmm. during, I was in Seattle during the grunge years, but I was, was not. Did you know Grunt Truck? I did. I always liked them. And, and of course, now I can't remember at all any of their songs. But I remember at the time being like, they should be bigger. <laughs> ben was a, a, a like a just a beautiful man, a gentle. They were all very gentle guys. And during the grunge years, there was a lot of attitude, of course, and people were just jerks. It was a drunken, jerky time. But Grunt Truck was just so generous, like on the scene, right? They'd walk up to the bar and strike up a conversation with the guy on a bar stool. Um, so I loved them a lot. And then they were. I was actually at the show where. They walked off the stage, and there were ten guys at the like standing at the side of the stage, waving record contracts. <laughs> wow! It was a different time. Yeah, um, where they were just you know there were guys from EMI and Sony and and mm -hmm. London Records or whatever that were just like sign with us. Right. Uh, <laughs> I also liked the Seattle band. I mean, I liked all the main ones too, mm -hmm. but um, named Peach. Peach. Did you know them? They were on Caroline Records, and now I'm not 100% sure they were from Seattle. No, I think I they were, though. Peach. Okay, they were later than Grunt Truck. Anyway. Uh, so I was there, but I, was not a, I wasn't able to put two nickels together to actually have even a guitar, let alone a band. 
But it was an inf- influential time in that the good grunge bands that you remember mm-hmm. were the only good bands. Every other band was awful, mm-hmm. and there were thousands of them. And I and I worked at a club. I watched a lot of shows night after night, and it it really galvanized me. Uh, just because if these dopes can do it, which club? I worked at the off ramp. I was the which was the it was one of the bars that was featured in singles. Mm-hmm. So I saw the early Mookie Blaylock shows before they became Pearl Jam, and Matt Dillon was there, and, <laughs> and uh, Duff McKagan would come in sometimes and and knock over some chairs, and it was um, it was like a lot of fun for somebody that was twenty one years old. Mm-hmm. But it also gave me a very unrealistic picture of what the future was going to be. Right, that's not how life is. And then I guess he has five questions <laughs> about Murder City Devils. <clears throat> uh, they were a later Seattle band that was like that brought a new kind of pop punk aesthetic to the town, and it was during the rise of indie rock too. And Seattle, it happens a lot, right? Where a town kind of has a identity moment where it's like, "What are we doing now?" Grunge was a moment where everybody at least got on the same page about what we about what other people were calling it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even though the Screaming Trees and Nirvana don't sound like one another. Right. But indie rock in the style of Built to Spill and Death Cab for Cutie and Modest Mouse were coming up at the same time as Murder City Devils and Botch and these bands that were that were more abrasive and faster and punker. And uh and that was when I was coming up too. So I was uh, I was friends with everybody, but there was a there was quite a gulf between, like Murder City Devils started a feud with uh, <laughs> Harvey Danger, and, and you were you were the touring keyboardist of Harvey Danger. Yeah, right? I got hired by Harvey Danger, but I I had no dog in the fight, right? Because I was I knew those guys. I'd shared a practice space with Murder City Devils, so and I recognized it was a fake feud. But it got personal. Like a Nas and Jay Z type of thing. It, yeah, it got ugly, and uh, there was no reason for it to get ugly. Mm-hmm. Who cares? You know, it's just like what? Which band is more authentic? Like it's, <laughs> it seems so irrelevant now. Uh-huh. We but, tried to start a rap feud with another Star Trek podcast, but they're just like nice dads that want to talk about Star Trek, and they didn't get it. They didn't like it. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, why are you doing that? Yeah, and then we felt really bad that we, <laughs> we like made them feel bad. Well, it's funny because Greatest Gen does a lot of mocking of Star Trek, but there are a lot of people that are very earnest about star trek yeah yeah no i i would say like our number one kind of detractor is somebody that feels like we are making fun of them by saying we're a little bit embarrassed to be doing star trek right um sorry to make it about me no 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 no. we're just racing through the let's do a speed round on the rest of these this guy's questions uh i say we well, well, let's bounce. Yes. Yeah. But wait, I feel like I had something else to say about Murder City Devils. It turns out they're what? wonderful guys. Yes. Oh, I know oh, what they, I was going to say. Were, but... One of the former Murder City, Murder City Devils is now an engineer at Max Fun. Dan Gallucci yes, was working at Man- Max Fun, and then I think he's now also left and, oh. and starting his own production company. Okay. But Derek Fidesco well, is like a good pal of mine, the bass player, and uh, we play poker sometimes. And was he in Pretty Girls he Make was. Graves? He and his uh, his beautiful wife right. were the two front people. I liked them too. So much music I used to be super into that I never listened to anymore since I listened to Rafi. Um, 
Okay. Alan White says, is it true you met a man with a see-through eye patch? Yeah. We met Alan White. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, Alan is a, is a, a big uh, uh, supporter of the show and uh, a really sweet guy. Uh, we had lunch with him at Max FunCon East last year. And he oh, recently, you bought him lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, defeated face cancer that wow. made like half of his face. Um, I don't know if it's temporarily or permanently. Uh, like all the he has like really severe nerve damage on one side of his face, so he like can't blink his eye. And so, to like keep his eye hydrated, he wears a see-through eye patch. That's... Yeah, he looks like somebody that you would see in a scene in Star Trek. Yeah. Sitting at the bar with a kind of like cyborgian. Yeah. He's like just, he's a really sweet guy. And um, when we, on Max Fun, our shows are kind of similar to like Patreon. We do audience support. And he like just took it upon himself to like go onto our Facebook group and our Reddit and like, exp- like roll out. Like, here's like, if you like this show, like, this is how you make it still be a thing Aww. next year. And it was like, Man, like I, I, it was such a sweet thing that he just did without anybody asking him to do it, and it, I think it really made a difference. It's like one of the nicest things anybody has ever done for me. So that's so sweet. God bless Alan White. God bless him. Um. Okay, let's do some just me or everyone. I'll explain that in a second. But first, since you mentioned Patreon, I will tell everyone I'm on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen is where you go. Different reward levels. You can get bonus episodes, access to uh, an exclusive interactive live stream, merch in the mail, all sorts, like too much access to me. You'll be begging me to leave you alone. (laughs) patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. Okay, so just me or everyone is where people write in with things they think or do and they wonder, is it just me or is it everyone? And then we say, which it is. Mm-hmm. Let's do just me or everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? Okay. Jeff Dodson says, hate when characters in a TV series turn on their TV and are immediately content with what they're watching. I have to go through every channel at least once before <laughs> landing on anything I'm interested in. I This never has occurred to me before, but now that I'm aware of it, yeah. I'm going to be very focused on it because I do that too. And now it's not just scrolling through the channels. It's like, or should I switch to the Apple TV? Right. I don't know. I can never go straight to the thing. Well, and also like... It's 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 one of those things that is it's shorthand. It's like when people in a TV show drive somewhere, they like drive up to the restaurant that they're going to and get out of the car and you never see like a valet, you never see them lock mm-hmm. the car, you never see them like you know like run back cuz they left their wallet on the seat next <laughs> to them like you never see anybody like say goodbye to anybody before they hang up the phone in a television show or movie. It's uh but that's that's one I'd never noticed and that is totally unrealistic and it really weird. Is. It begs the, or not begs the question, that's the wrong way of describing it. Hey, well, we're speaking English and oh. uh, when you're speaking extemporaneously, you're not held to the same rules of grammar oh, as you. Uh, when you write. Um, I'm old enough to remember before people had remote controls, right, when you had to get up and change the channel on your TV. I remember when remote controls first came out and all they could do was go up. You couldn't go then back down. You had to go <laughs> all the way up and around. 
<laughs> um, but there was a time when you changed the channel on the remote and it changed the channel on the TV instantaneously. And somehow, as we got further into the future now, you push a button on your TV remote and there's a 30-second lag. I can't stand it. And it's like, why have we not conquered this issue? And also, <laughs> now that we have instant access to everything, why do I still have to scroll through seven shopping channels, 15 ESPN channels? Why is there not a system? Why has this not been systematized? Mm -hmm. And it's it's yeah, some why combination. Why can't I just type in moonshiners and that show comes on? Or just say Alexa moonshiners. I mean, I guess we're we're closer to that. And I'm sorry I just said Alexa because oh, anyone that's yeah, listening that's in their house is just like <laughs> shut up, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, but uh, but but like TV technology feels like it's it's got not planned obsolescence, but some kind of strange choking choke point in the technology we maybe young people don't remember when you could watch cable TV and just go show, 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 show mm -hmm. and get to where you were going. I mean, I had a hundred channels in 1981 and I didn't spend all this time just waiting for the thing to load. Similarly, it used to be that when you had a phone call with someone, you would say so, like it, 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 there was an intimacy because it really sounded like you were talking to each other. Whereas now, when you on cell phones, there's it, like I get so frustrated because there's so much interference and delay. And if you're talking right. and then they talk at the same time, you can't hear them. And I mean, just the whole negotiation of oh no 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 you go. <laughs> <laughs> Do you sometimes hear like the the speed up because they're like the technology is trying to like close some gap by like playing them back a little bit faster than they actually said something. I hate it. Do you remember a time when you would pick up the phone to call your best friend and they would already be there? Yes. <laughs> I do remember that happening. That was magical. Yeah. And I tried to describe that to somebody the other day and they just looked at me blankly because every aspect of that right. doesn't make any sense. How did that... Was it that you had both placed the call at exactly the same time? Your friend had called you and you were like, I'm going to call my friend. And before it rang, you picked up the phone and were like, hello? And they would say... Hello? <laughs> yeah. I was just about to call you. If you're lucky, what? you hear the, the dial tone of like the last three before they finished and then and then they're there. No, that's not how it that's, works. That's happened to me. You heard like, beep, boop, beep. Yeah, like they're just finishing <laughs> dialing. Hmm. Born in 1984 or whatever. He doesn't have any idea what he's <laughs> talking about. Oh, God. Yeah, I definitely remember that with my my first best friend. And I remember when we sort of became, were becoming best friends. We would talk on the phone every day after school. It was like falling in love. Yeah. It was a heady time. My high school girlfriend and I would fall asleep with the phones on our chests mm -hmm. because we, it was just like, you hang up. No, you hang up. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca Green says, I get so so sad and mad when I hear excellent comedians proving the adage about pathologically low self-esteem making a great comic. Now, she's specifically referring to Allie Ward, who was on the group show, who uh, was expressing some insecurity about her performance on the show. But in general, yes, do you find that excellent comedians pa have pathologically low self-esteem and does it frustrate you? I mean... I think that it's like a weird mix, right? It's, I, I, I think uh, I definitely suffer from that like imposter complex of like, oh, like why is anybody listening to me? And I'm not a comedian, but I, I guess it's like something performer, somewhat adjacent to that. 
but like if to be like a stand-up you really have to like go go fail mostly to, before you're good at it and i i, I saw a friend uh do stand-up at at SF Sketchfest that I hadn't seen perform in probably like seven years, and he's like gotten so good, like just a, you know, he did an hour and just slayed the entire time. Who was it? Baron Vaughn. Oh yeah. And um, you know, and I used to see him in like little fifteen-person shows in Brooklyn, where you know he would like go on stage after somebody did some cello or whatever, <laughs> and like uh, I think that there's like insecurity in anybody that's going on stage, but there's also some, con- some conceit that like, Oh, I have something that people are going to want to hear, mm-hmm. you know? So it's a, it's a little bit of a dichotomy. What do you find with musicians? I think with performers, there are, there are a lot of people that are just extroverted and think that everybody's always watched them and that they not deserve to be there, but they're just, that's where they're comfortable. Mm-hmm being on stage doing their rock and roll um, and they can't wait to get on stage again. And then there are really, you know, introverted people that become performers partly as a mask, a way to, to get out into the world. Um, but being on stage uses them up. And by the time they get off stage, they're exhausted and they don't have any energy left. And if you're introspective as an artist, I think you're constantly questioning what you're doing and if your art is in, you know, like if you're a comedian, your your whole thing is that you're hopefully taking yourself apart all the time as a part of, you know, comedians are like journalists. They're taking us apart Mm. and that's hard. It's exhausting. And I don't think there's a lot of comfort that you return to. You don't come home and feel like good job, (laughs) <laughs> taking the shit out of everything and good job just like really looking at yourself hard and finding ugliness and then you get home and you're like hey honey yeah how'd i do today and the answer is usually like well while you were off goofing off like <laughs> there was a lot of stuff that needed to get done around the house and you're like okay well thanks you know well while you were off goofing off on your job and not making any real money right um, and so, yeah, it's just, it's kind of baked in that you feel bad all the time. Um, certainly that's true in a lot of, and particularly yeah, a lot, I was, I was, I just did a show a couple of nights ago with 10 great musicians, uh, Kevin Morby, Elvis Perkins, uh, Eric Johnson, um, and, and uh, other people besides, and everybody there had had success enough that we were all on this cool show, but no one had ever had one of those years where everything worked out Mm -hmm. and where you just had, you made that transition to being like, I'm in the, I'm in the show now. You know, it was always like, I got to get back on the horse. And, um, and that's different than having a job and working your way up. You know, it's like, and you're in a back, you're in a room with these people and you're kind of, you're consciously thinking, how do I rank here? You know, in a, in a room full of comedians, they're all looking at each other. Like, how do I rank? Like that can be, Pat now Oswald is obviously bigger than me, (laughs) but like this person over here, are they bigger? Like which one of us is going to go into the grinder first? Mm -hmm. It can change in an afternoon. Yeah. 
in my early twenties, I, uh, spent a lot of time hanging out with standups and, uh, and that like slight little competition between like you, like I was at a house party one time and I was like standing in a group of people. Like I thought I was like being funny and engaging and somebody like just from across the circle was like, Ben, you should be a stand up. You're always doing bits. <laughs> and I just like ran into the corner in total yeah. shame. Yeah. It, was, it was like, like stop trying to be a funny guy. We're the funny people. Yeah. He just kicked <laughs> you in the back of the knee. right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, I had Cameron Esposito on the show, and she was saying that something that she really likes about comedy is that it's like a cast system. And I was thinking, it was interesting because I, like, to me, that would never be a thing I would applaud. Um, although I completely understood what she was saying, like liking right. that structure. There's like um, something meritocratic about it. Right, right. But I guess I have more of a like, everyone should be equal kind of to a fault thing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. It's very French of you. <laughs> <laughs> I think of myself. Yeah, that way. Okay, Dennis Allen Cox the second says, while driving, if any police are near, I'm scared to make any moves or even look anywhere but forward <laughs> so as not to give them a reason to think I'm on my phone. Yes, I do that too. Yeah, yeah, definitely like not checking the GPS ever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm very new to like having to drive routinely because I lived for 15 years in New York, but um, I'm, I feel that. I feel like that's a new thing. Like when I was growing up in California driving, I like just like just keep an eye on that guy and make sure you watch your speed while he's around. But now there's like a whole new suite of things that you can get in trouble for. Right. So <laughs> well, you have to just freeze. And you have a one-year-old. I do. I have a seven-year-old who is a relentless nag and backseat driver. <laughs> so if I have my phone anywhere near me, I will hear from the backseat, Daddy, don't touch your phone. <laughs> and it's a rule that she figured out. I got pulled over one time mm-hmm. while she was in the car because I was on my phone. And so she took it upon herself to enforce all traffic yeah. laws. She tells me to slow down. She tells me <laughs> when I went through a yellow light. So I'm being constantly mo- – I feel like I have a low jack on <laughs> In another context, you'd be flushing your cigarettes down the toilet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bruised by Dawn says, this must have come up at some point. Um, I don't think it has. But until I heard someone read the word aloud, I initially thought Segway was pronounced Sieg. There have to be other people like that. Well, and especially since the 80s band Sieg Sieg Sputnik uh, did pronounce it Sieg which complicated it for any mid-80s new waivers who were trying to figure it out. And also now Segway is spelled phonetically right. in the case of the scooter. That's right. right. So it is, it's understandably like hard to know exactly where you're supposed to land on. It's not a, it's not a natural pronunciation. What is your most embarrassing, I've read this word but said it wrong out loud because I never heard anybody pronounce it? I have two. Laska Vicious. That's mm-hmm. when I was real young. Oh, but I thought Lascivious was Laska Vicious. It sounds better as Laska Vicious. Laska I like Vicious. Laska Vicious. Awesome. Yeah. It sounds Yiddish. <laughs> and then also... Laska Vicious was actually my glam rock band in college. <laughs> <laughs> um, the word chic, I thought was pronounced chick. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh-huh. uh, What I... a chick hairdo. <laughs> 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 a, a, a chick updo. Yeah. I mean, there's like a certain logic to that. Um, when I first got to, to New York for college, I referred to I referred to it as the Flasheron Building. Mm. Oh, 
uh, which uh, I I just like somebody like I said that out loud and somebody just laughed in my face like I was the biggest dope in the world and I was very ashamed. I'm a I'm someone who is full of spoonerisms mm-hmm. and and um, try and feels like language is fun, but I also mispronounce words constantly. There's no example that I could point. To. I mean, I'm <laughs> people write in after every show I do and say that's not how that's. I was corrected by a pharmacist the other day, and I was like, listen, young man. I've been pronouncing it ephedrine for years. It, you can call it ephedrine all you want. Uh, but I remember specifically- Isn't in, that a brand name? Uh, it's a chemical name. It is, okay. Because yeah. I was going to say, if it's a brand name, then there is no right. But yeah. if but, it's actually know, But even scientific names, I mean, come on. You can just- <laughs> I mean, the, the ones that have 14 syllables, like, just make it through, you know? Right. Uh, if, you, but, if you want to hear a funny pronunciation of that word, I recommend a show on Netflix called Border Patrol, and it's about New Zealand border guards oh. like catching people trying to smuggle Chinese cold medicine into New Zealand to make meth. So, all right, they say it a lot. I'll check it out. <laughs> but I remember in the in the 1970s, I was reading Mad Magazine a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of the the sort of sounds that people make mouth sounds are are written out. In mad, you know, gross sounds, splat and splort mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And my dad was saying something, and I wanted to express kind of dismissive contempt. And I said, "Oh, pshaw!" <laughs> <laughs> and my dad was like, "What did you just say?" And I said, "Pshaw!" And he was like, "You!" And he, you know, like grabbing the front of my shirt. And I was like, "Pshaw!" P S H A W. And he was like, what "The fuck? That's not a word." <laughs> And I had to like go show him in the magazine that it was their way of of writing out. Psh. I feel like that's entered the lexicon though. Pshaw, yeah. Pshaw, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it, and it, I think it comes from mad. It's like one in three words my wife says to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Sooner Magic says I could probably eat healthier if all the healthiest foods weren't also the smelliest. Hashtag broccoli farts, <laughs> which really can be taken two ways because cruciferous yeah. vegetables are gas producing, but also when you cook broccoli, it smells like farts. Yeah, hmm. what's that word? Cruciferous? Yeah, that's like uh, broccoli, cauliflower, and I don't know what other ones are. I like that word. Broccoli and cauliflower are related to like Brussels sprouts and kale too. Yep. So I think those, those two are, are as well. Yeah. And mustard maybe? Is that a I'm not sure. No. I no. think cruciferous refers to like the 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 stalk maybe oh. looking sort of like a cross. And now I'm just making this up. I I like that uh, etymology. Um there are a lot of reasons not to want to eat healthy food. It <laughs> doesn't have a lot of sugar and fat in it, I think, are, and salt are the three reasons that people don't want to eat it. I feel like oats are like my number one thing. Like if I have a breakfast cereal that is like oat squares or something. But you are half horse. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me yeah, rip a lot of your ass. Your father was a horse. So. Yeah. He's the, only, he's the only horse to ever earn the rank of lieutenant in the army, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he took care of elephants, which is interesting. Mm, yeah. Well, you know, they're yeah, they're natural. There's a natural affinity there, right? And a and a hierarchy. Like or, horses are definitely above elephants mm-hmm. in terms of being in charge. Mm-hmm. Not not on Animal Farm. <laughs> Actually, there were no elephants, but it didn't go well for the horses. So. No. Oats make you fart is what you're saying. Yep. Just uh, wanted to put that out okay. there. <laughs> Good to know. Chelsea Leonard says, 
Just mirror everyone. Wait for the crash every time two people are talking and driving in a movie. Hmm. It does bother me sometimes. It makes me yeah. begin to feel edgy when they're not when they're not looking at the road, right? Yeah, I bet we we just watched all of the uh, of Queer Eye on Netflix, and they do a lot of like driving around rural Georgia in that show with like GoPros stuck to the windshield of the car, and uh, they are just engaged in a conversation with each other, and <laughs> like one of like this is like just a recipe for disaster because they're so engaged in the conversation with each other they can't possibly be focusing on driving. Now, many- a lot of shows like they just pull the car that they're supposed to be in behind another car that's actually steering. How is the new season of Queer Eye? Great. Totally great. Couldn't recommend it more highly. And then also, have they dropped the For the Straight Guy yeah, part of it? Because the, yeah. we, my husband and I were driving and he was like, you know, if they're trying to appeal to straight men, they're going about it in a weird way. And it's like <laughs> just a billboard of five naked men leaning right. on each other. And I'm like, it's just called Queer Eye now, though. I think they might have dropped the original conceit, which is that it was like, we're going to help the straight man style his life. Right. I uh, I think it's there's like eight episodes and maybe like only a couple are other gay men, but uh it's it's a really good show. It's uh I feel like a, a reality show with a lot of real heart in a way that a lot of them are not, you know. Well, then I need to watch it because I had it parked on Bravo for like 8 hours yesterday. <laughs> I actually don't have an opinion about it having been that way. I feel like I, that was leading to something. Just, just that I sort of. Well, did took they in say a lot of yes Bravo. to the dress or not? <laughs> no, it wasn't that. It was million dollar listing, New York, <laughs> and then it was Bethany and Frederick. Frederick from Million Dollar Listing, New York. Wow. And then it was um, Real Housewives of New York. No, of Beverly Hills. I've never watched any of these shows. You haven't. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't watched them in a long time. And then yesterday, I just sort of got sucked in. My wife has been watching Vanderpump Rules. I was very into that. Yeah. I got Daniel, my husband, into that. And now he's more into it than I am. <laughs> like, I, I somehow can't get back into I need to get back into it. Yeah. I mean, I don't need to, but. <laughs> uh, the other show, reality show that I've been really liking is Fire Chasers on Netflix. It's like following, like, women in prison in California that get trained to be like rural firefighters and uh it's totally amazing john do you watch any of this no but i was in a hotel this weekend (laughs) or this week and i uh was flipping through the channels and i landed on a show i'm from alaska right Mm. and most of those it's a whole genre now discovery channel is just like 90 percent alaska-based programming yeah and that never existed until pretty recently, but like all those gold mining shows, when I was in high school, I worked on a gold mine in the summer. That was like one of the jobs that you would do as a kid. I guess you would also work at the convenience store, but gold mine was mine up above the <laughs> Arctic Circle, uh, where we would just it was a sluice mine. And uh, so, watching those shows where there's a bunch of guys just at a gold mine, it just feels like a busman's holiday to me. I didn't like that job. I don't want to watch these guys do it. <laughs> but there was a. Wait, I'm sorry. What's a busman's holiday? Oh, a busman's holiday is when a guy that drives a bus goes and takes a bus trip uh, oh. for his holiday. <laughs> just feels like, why would you go? Yeah. He's not going to do that, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but there is a show that I stumbled on last night called, uh, like, Homestead Rescue, hmm. where this guy, his son and daughter, go to 
places where people are trying to homestead and live off the grid and they help them solve their homesteading problems. Oh, it's like kitchen nightmares, but for people that are going back to the land? <laughs> because there are all these people in America that this back to the land idea really appeals to them. And they buy some property in Montana or the Ozarks or in Alaska, and they build some rattletrap little shack, and they buy 15 chickens, and they think, all right, we're living off the land. And then the winter comes, and they're just, you know, they're, they die. Um, and so these... Lol. <laughs> so this guy, you know, grew up in Alaska off the grid and he taught his kids to live that way. But they're very personable and they just show up at these places where these, you know, folks are standing out there all proud of their little chicken enclosure. Yeah. Who are these like super telegenic people that grew up in the middle of nowhere never talking to anybody? Well, Alaska is full of real characters, right? The only people that ended up there were people that were chased out of everywhere else. But <laughs> they're also, there are a lot of really... Yeah, dynamic people. You have to be to live up there successfully. And so, you know, you end up with this situation where I'm sure TV producers go up there and say, yeah, anybody up here interesting? And it's just like, <laughs> who isn't? But <laughs> so I, I watched like 15 episodes of this show and really got into the family. By the end, I was like, oh, you know, I want to know more. Homestead Rescue? Homestead Rescue. I'm going to have to get into this and... With fire chasers. Fire chasers. Fire. Now I have two new shows. Yeah. Ben and John, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Everyone hey, should you. go check out all Friendly Fire for sure, but also all the other ones. Um, There's tell a lot people, of content out there. Tell people where they can can find each of you and your shows. Well, Friendly Fire is on MaximumFun.org, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, FriendlyFire.fm. If uh, if you want an easy URL to put in. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think we've got six or seven episodes out now, so it's new, it's easy to catch up and, uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. My two, uh, long running podcasts, Roderick on the line and Roadwork, both now have, I mean, Roderick on the line has hundreds of episodes, um, and they're, you know, wide ranging. Some of them are pretty good. Thanks. <laughs> uh, and all, all, all these podcasts can be found everywhere that podcasts can be found. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, Omnibus, I think, is becoming – it's on the um, How Stuff Works network. And it's, it's, uh, they're a major media company, and, and they're positioning it as a, as a competitor to an NPR show. So it's, it's now – there are ads for it in buses and stuff. It's, a, it's kind of a, a, an, it's a new attempt, I think, to – take podcasting to that next level which everyone in podcasting keeps both imagining is on the we're on the cusp of it and also like kind of a little horrified by it mm, I mean, that is all, how i feel yeah <laughs> we all take ads from casper mattresses right now nobody has any ads from budweiser yet mm -hmm. and it's horrifying to imagine but that but podcasting continues to grow because it's a great medium and Everyone listening to this show is will one day be thought of as a real early adopter of the of the genre, but I think it has endless potential to grow into other audiences. We're hoping that Friendly Fire becomes popular with military people. We've been thinking about putting ads for it in um, in Stars and Stripes uh, because they they may not be listening to podcasts, but this is a way in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But omnibus is is very much a general. Wouldn't interest. that be a busman's holiday for them? <laughs> well, except that we're three like West Coast liberal cucks talking about <laughs> uh, talking about military stuff. So they're going to be like, "What? 
<laughs> uh, but I know a lot of stuff, right? So they can't yell at me about not knowing what airplanes they yeah. are. Yeah. They can yell at me about They're going to yell at him because <laughs> he, he brings some millennial uh, you know, righteousness to a lot yeah. of the stuff. Millennial righteousness and also millennial ignorance. So it's a, it's a really awesome combination. Uh, awesome. Jeff, where do we find you? Alexa, follow me on Facebook and Twitter <laughs> at Colonel Jeff Fox. Oh, that's smart. Alexa, subscribe to my podcast, iTunes.com slash, if you like what you're hearing, iTunes.com slash Allison Rosen is where you go to subscribe. Also, all the other places that you can find podcasts, I mean, you can find me there and, uh, and subscribe and whatnot. Follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Follow me on Instagram at Allison Rosen. Just go to my uh, website, actually, AllisonRosen.com, and then it's got all the all the links to follow me all the places and you can buy t-shirts and ringtones and all that. Okay. Thank hey, you. Hey Siri, set a reminder to support Allison on Patreon. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Alexa, <laughs> send me 100 euros at <laughs> johnroderick.com. Thank you guys so much for doing the show. Yeah, a wonderful time. I think a lot of people listening might not realize that you just have six people standing in the corner of the room waiting to do that class at any moment. Whoa, there's 15 in the kitchen. They're so patient. You see those guys over there. They've heard every episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time. Yeah, Alison Rosen is your new best.